All right, Will, welcome to the stage. Do you have a question you'd like to ask me? I heard the story of Noah and the Ark many times, but I still don't understand why God let all those people go that didn't go on the Ark. That is a tough question, my friend. Thank you for asking it. You may have a seat. Well, Will, I don't think I asked that question until I was in grad school, so you're already well ahead of me. This is an important question about a story that is very early in the Bible. And in the, on the off chance that you don't know this story, I want to give a brief recap and overview. Basically, a long time ago, humanity was at a point that was very bad. Humanity was making bad decisions, nothing like today. And they were making these decisions, and God saw all of this, and God was so disappointed in their decisions that God was filled with regret. God thought to God's self, I wish I never made humanity to begin with. But God saw among all of the ruins of morality a man named Noah and his family. And God went to Noah and God said, I want you to build a boat with you and your sons. And I want this boat to be big enough to house all the different species of animals. And I'll allow you eight people, the eight people in your family, to be part of what survives in the new world to come. So Noah and his sons built this ark, and once they built it and finished it, animals came from far and wide, every species you could imagine, and filled the ark two by two, or in some cases seven by, well, just seven. And they filled the ark, and then they got in the ark with the, all the animals, and then the waters started to come down. Floods were everywhere. The entire earth, according to Scripture, was covered in at least 250 feet of water, to the tallest mountaintop. And once all of humanity and all of the animals had died, the waters began to recede until the ark rested on top of a mountain. And once there, God put a rainbow in the sky and God said, I know that was bad, but I'll never do it again. And when I hear this story today, and I think about Will asking this question, and I think about how I have heard this story being told today, I want you to tell you, I, I have a hot take when it comes to this story. The story of God, Noah, and the flood is not a children's story. Can I get an amen, hallelujah? Because it's not, right? Let me give you an idea of how much this is a children's story in our society today. If you buy a beginner's Bible, Noah is often on the cover building his life raft while all the people who are about to die are apparently taking the picture of Noah in front of the ark. There's also coloring pages that kids can fill out of a watery grave with all sorts of bodies underneath it. And then, I kid you not, I saw this in a bookstore, and it just blew my mind. There's this book that says, My Very First Noah's Ark Storybook, as if there's going to be more that come. But the, the, the subtitle is what really got me. It says, A Soft and Cozy Bible Story for Babies. To which I wanted to take a marker and write, Where Pretty Much Everyone Dies. The story of God, the Noah, and the flood, it's not a children's story. It's not. Let's just all agree that we need to stop putting this into all the books, right? All the children's books, all the kids' books. Like, we got to get rid of this story because it is a story that deals with very mature themes. However, if you've raised kids in this day and age in, in the United States of America, you know something. Unfortunately, every Christian will hear this story as a child. It's unavoidable. And so one of these children, a man or a boy named Will, came along and heard this story and said, hey, 
What about the people outside the ark? And he asked this question to his dad, and Brian responded by saying, don't worry, Will, they were all excellent swimmers, <laughs> which I think is a very good answer. <laughs> it was bedtime, he said. <laughs> End of discussion. <laughs> we have this story in Genesis 6, 7, and 8 that happens, and it's a story where lots of people die and only a few people survive. And Will asks this question because he finds that there's something uncomfortable about this story. And I have to tell everyone here who has read this story that if you find this story to be disturbing, it's okay because I find this story to be disturbing too. It's disturbing because it deals with mature themes and it was never meant to be a children's story. When you go back and you read the text, you realize that this was not intended to be read to children. This was a story with a very different target demographic in mind. So if we go back to this first part of this story where humanity is supposedly so depraved that God wishes that God never made any of them, a question we need to ask is, what sin exactly did humankind commit that made God regret their decision to make humanity in the first place? And what I found is that most Christians don't know the answer to this question, even though it's in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1, 2, and 4. So if we go back, we'll hear about the sin that humanity was committing that apparently offended God so much that God said, ah, it's time to start over. So let's go to Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, and we read, When humankind began to grow in numbers and to spread over the earth, and women became more plentiful, divine beings... Now, I want to stop there because this is from the inclusive Bible. If you go back to the original Hebrew, you come across these words here, and a much better translated translation is the sons of God. Yes, sons being plural. So we read this story about how the women had become more plentiful, and the sons of God in heaven saw how beautiful the human women were and chose women to marry with whomever they chose. Now, we then read in the next couple verses here, the Nephilim came along, who were apparently the children of these different kind of marriages. The Nephilim were considered to be giants of the day. They were considered to be mythical creatures also. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and afterward as well, when divine beings did married things with mortal women who bore children by them, those were the Giborim, or warriors of old, individuals of great renown. Yahweh, God, saw the great wickedness of the people of the earth that the thoughts in their hearts fashioned nothing but evil. Yahweh was sorry that humankind had been created on earth. It pained God's heart. And so Yahweh said, I will wipe this human race that I have created from the face of the earth, not only humans, but also the animals, the reptiles, and the birds of the heavens. I am so sorry I ever made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. So when we go back and we ask this question, what sin did humanity commit that made God this angry and filled with regret? Well, apparently, human women were marrying sons of God. That's what the story is. And God saw this, like, divine human marriage and said, I got to put a stop to this, and sent a worldwide flood to destroy everyone. This story is in the Bible. And yet I rarely hear Christians talk about the sin that led to the flood happening. And when I read that closely, it instantly brings to mind questions we got to start asking about what the Bible is and what role it plays in our life. Because the Bible is made up of a spectrum. And I found that Christians will agree with this 100%. On this spectrum, there are stories that happened 
and stories that did not happen. And every Christian agrees with it, whether, even if they're uncomfortable agreeing with this. For instance, stories that happen. I can stand up here and say in full confidence, I know that about 2,500 years ago, Babylon attacked Jerusalem and conquered Jerusalem and forced the people living there to go live in exile. We have extra-biblical accounts. We have all sorts of records. The archaeology matches. Everything lines up. In the Bible, though, there are also stories that did not happen, and every Christian agrees on this, right? There are stories like the prodigal son. While Jesus told this as a parable, nobody thinks there was a literal prodigal son who returned to his father and taught about what love looks like in very difficult situations. So the Bible is filled with stories that both happened and stories that did not happen. And there's a lot of disagreement as to where some stories fall on this spectrum. But when I read a story about sons of God descending from heaven and marrying mortal women, a question arises, did the sons of God actually descend from heaven and marry these mortal women? To which my response is, no, definitely not. And you may ask how I can say that so confidently, to which I would say, it would be theologically catastrophic. Sons of God? I know a lot of Christians who believe there can only be one son of God. So now there's multiple ones? and they're marrying women? Let's also look at it from this example. There is a power dynamic in the story in the fact that there are divine beings who are, you know, higher than humanity, and humanity. And God, rather than punishing the divine beings, the sons of God, God punishes humanity. Some people who didn't marry these people, right? And so all of a sudden, all the questions about whether or not God is good or just because God is punishing the wrong people start to come to the surface. So for me, when I read this story, it's a difficult story, and we have questions like Will's question, I file this immediately under stories that did not happen. The sons of God descending from heaven and marrying with mortal women. Now, you may disagree with that, and that's okay. We just start discussions with sermons here. But for me, when I hear this, I'm like, well, the theological ramifications for that would be quite difficult to process. Now, this is the precursor to a story about a worldwide flood, and the reason God supposedly sends this flood is because God is so angry about these marriages, which raises the question, did God actually kill all of humanity with a worldwide flood? To which my response is, no. And you may ask me how I know this, and I would say because we have geologists. And geologists who start with saying, I want to know what the world will tell me about what happened, rather than taking a Bible and say, I want to tell the world what happened to it, those geologists are not coming to the same conclusion of a worldwide flood. Instead, they are coming to unanimous consensus about how the world formed, why we got the rocks that we did. It's nearly unanimous, and they all come to the same conclusions, the same dates, independent of one another. And the thing that I've heard from religion is that there's this conspiracy theory happening, and that scientists are getting together and saying, how can we take down religion? My friends, scientists are not working together to destroy religion. I have encountered religious people working together to destroy science, but I have not encountered scientists working together to destroy religion. And if there was a global worldwide flood where the highest point, Mount Everest, was under 250 feet of water, I have no doubt that geologists would be able to figure that out and tell us so. But instead, they've told us a very different story about the history of the world. So for me, when I hear this, I have no problem saying, no, I don't think this story actually happened. Now, a question that needs to come to focus then is, so where did this story come from? 
Well, to answer that, I want to tell you a story about your friend Will, a man named Bodie. You know Bodie? My son, right? We like to go skiing. We've gone skiing with you. And um, I have this rule now, because my kids are getting to the point where they're fun to ski with. Um, I have this rule that if they don't want to quit, I won't quit. So no matter how bad it is, if they want to still ski, I will ski with them. Which, with Maya, it's not a problem. With Bodie, it's becoming a problem. <laughs> Which is why we have pictures like this, where it is windy, there's ice flying in her face. Like, we're out there, and I'm like, you want to take another one? He says, yes, and I die inside. But on the outside, I say, okay, son, I'm proud of you. <laughs> there was one day in March of this year where Bodie wanted to keep skiing, and it was like the worst day imaginable. You could barely see. The ice was flying. The wind was blowing as fast as we could. It was freezing. And we got to the bottom. I said, all right, kids, you done? And Bodie's like, let's go on pumpkin. I'm like, no, not pumpkin. I don't like pumpkin, but if Bodie wants to ski it, I'll ski it. So we took a video, and the video is not nearly as bad as it actually was, but I risked frostbite to get this video. So here's what this looks like. His buddy on pumpkin, this is what he wanted. Go, 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 go. It was rough out there. And I tell you that because if we got to the bottom of the mountain, we could have had a conversation and we could have said, hmm, felt like God didn't want us to ski anymore, right? Now, we of course know a lot more about science than they did back in the Bible times, but Today, like you could easily explain this away, talk about high pressure system, low pressure systems, cloud patterns, cloud movements, wind. You can talk about all of those things. But thousands of years ago, there wasn't all of this scientific explanation. But there was still weather that was angry that people said, doesn't feel like God wants us to be out here right now. Sometimes these came in the form of natural disasters like floods. And people experienced floods firsthand. And floods were quite a frightening experience and a tragic experience. People died in floods, and they had no scientific explanation. The flood just all of a sudden showed up in their neighborhood. So a long time ago, before science ever existed, some people survived a flood, looked around, and they said, how did this happen? And without a scientific method, the conclusion they came to was, wow, God must be really angry with us. And I can't blame them for thinking that, right? Like, I can empathize and understand this wholeheartedly. And so when we read this story about a worldwide flood, well, you can imagine they don't have cell phones where they can call someone else and say, did you guys have a flood too? It probably felt like their whole world was underwater. And while I don't believe a worldwide flood happened, I can understand why it was written in the first place. However, and this is where things are quite different here at Paradox, where people expect me to go one way and I go a very different way, I have to tell you, that I still find value in discussing the story of the flood today. I know a lot of people who say, oh, it didn't happen, it's worthless, let's not talk about it. I think there's a lot of value in holding this story close, telling our families about it, and discussing this story to the point that we can actually have a productive conversation. To talk about that, I want to talk about stories that happened and stories that did not happen. If we go back to, you know, the attack on Jerusalem in 586, versus the prodigal son. What I have found is that most Christians, some of them know about 586 BCE and the attack on Jerusalem, but not everyone does. However, almost every Christian knows the story of the prodigal son. And what this teaches us is that a story's value does not solely depend on whether or not it historically occurred. 
right? We have this idea that if a story literally occurred, it's somehow more valuable to us. But the prodigal son, one of the most influential stories in all of Christian history, is a story that's made up. And it's very valuable to our tradition. To put this in ways that seven-year-olds can understand, I know my son and his friend Will love Pokemon, right? I hope I'm not bursting any bubbles here. Pokemon is not a true story. It did, I know, right? Sorry, you need a minute? <laughs> Pokemon is not a true story, but a lot of people find value in the story of Pokemon, right? It's just the way it is. You don't have to have a story be true in order to find it valuable or even use words like holy to describe it. And so we have to remind ourselves that if a story didn't literally historically occur, it doesn't mean it's, inval or it doesn't mean it's not valuable. It means that it actually can be very valuable to a tradition. And when I think about the story of the flood, the value in this story, this story that I don't believe happened, can be found in Will's question. Because here, Will has asked a question that I have found to be far more interesting than the question, do you believe the flood historically and literally occurred? This is a much better question to ask. And the reason why is because this is a question about the character of God. This is a question about who God is. And the truth is, we probably wouldn't be having this discussion today without this story. And so all of a sudden, because we have this story that has all sorts of things with sons of God marrying mortal women, where people die in the story and it's a tragedy and God seems very angry, my response when I read it today is I can just sit confidently, embrace the story, and then say to my kids, to my friends, well, the God I know isn't an angry God. And this is the work of an angry God. This story reflects an angry God, and I, the God I know that I've met personally in my life, that God would never do what happens in Genesis 6. This is alluded to in the story when you look at the end of the story, when the boat rise, uh, rests on Mount Ararat, there's a rainbow in the sky, and God says, hey, I know this happened once, but it won't happen again. Now, while that may sound regressive by our standards today, it was actually very progressive thousands of years ago. Because God is saying, you know, destroying the world with a flood isn't actually in my character. And so the people hearing this story heard about a flood previously, but God says, oh, that, that's not going to happen again because that's not who I am. In other words, the story is telling people the God we know will not destroy our world with a flood. That's who we know God to be. So we have this story that's a worldwide flood. I have a hard time believing that it literally and historically occurred, but I still find value in it. But I have also encountered lots of people who believe this story to be 100% true. I know them as well, right? They are some of my friends, and they are also some of my acquaintances. And I want to tell everyone here that if you encounter people who believe that the flood is historically true, they are not bad people. Even if these people call me a bad person for telling others that the flood is not true, they are not bad people, right? And it's important to remember this because we have all this wide tradition and the whole idea that if we could just all believe the same thing, we'd be better off, that is a story that just simply isn't going to happen and doesn't work. And I have a lot of respect for people who believe different things about the Bible than I do, and I try my best to meet them where they are and find out how we can work together to make this world a better place. Now, I do have a bit of a pet peeve that I have to talk to you about. 
Because what I have found is that sometimes Christians add things to the story that aren't in the original story. And while that's fine, as long as we all say, well, I added this part to make it better, if you present the story as having that made-up part or the part that's not in the text, well, that really frustrates me. To give you an idea, I know a lot of Christians who tell this story about Noah building the ark with his sons. They're having a great old time doing this. And then they tell a part that uh, isn't in Scripture. They say that Noah, in between building the ark, when he needed a break, he would stand up and preach to all the people and say, hey, you all are welcome to come into the ark with us and save yourself. God's sending a flood. And according to this extra part, people respond by saying like, oh, no, God's not real. We're not actually believing in God. And then, you know, Noah keeps trying to present to them that they need to join the ark, and they just don't. Well, this isn't in the Bible. It's not there. Noah never invited anyone else to join the family in the ark. It's a part of the story. And when you look at it, God only wants to save eight people in the story, and so God only saves eight people. There's never an invitation for others to join. God is only angry with them. Which raises the question, why do Christians change the story of Noah from what is in the Bible? Well, I think it's because this story raises all sorts of uncomfortable questions, disturbing questions, and there's this sense that if people had a chance to jump on the ark with Noah, then at least Christians today could respond to all these drowning people with, a, well, they kind of deserved it, right? They had a chance to get out of this. And this is an important distinction to make because unhealthy religion will try to convince us that we do not need to feel bad for someone who is suffering if they deserve that suffering, Right? If somebody brought the mess upon themselves, we don't need to feel bad for them because it's like, well, you had a chance. You heard the message of Jesus once. You could have gotten out of this. But I have found that healthy religion is quite different. Healthy religion will always lead you to become a more empathetic person. Always. It's the best that religion has to offer regardless of what religion it is. And if you look up empathy in the dictionary, you come across this definition of the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. That is a great definition. And when I think about when I raise my own kids, I mean, you're not going to believe this, but my kids, every now and then, they fight with each other. And when they do, one of the most common questions my wife asks or I ask to them is we ask them, okay, we heard that you did this. How would you feel if your sibling did that to you? And Bodhi says, if Maya did that to me, I wouldn't like it. So, great. So why did you do it to her? And vice versa. Maya, why did you do this to Bodhi? Well, well, how would you feel if Bodhi did that to you? I wouldn't like it. Great. So stop doing it. We could easily just say, stop doing it. But instead, we want to take them on this journey of empathy because this question is rooted in the ability to try to feel something that is outside your own perspective. And so when we come across these ideas that the people outside the flood we don't need to worry about because they deserved it, it's instantly an empathy blocker. It's saying you don't need to feel bad for these people because they deserve to die, right? And yet, is that where healthy religion leads us? Never. Never. Instead, healthy religion leads us to empathy. And when I think about what Paradox Kids is and the fact that we have a kids' ministry, we, we as a, a team, we want all of our kids here to become people of great empathy. We want them to consider things from perspectives that are not their own. We want them to be able to feel something that someone else is feeling. And this is 
probably our biggest priority here. And you may feel like I'm overanalyzing it or I'm leaning too much into empathy, but I'm not the first person to pick up on this. In fact, if you go back about 2,000 years ago, there was a rabbi named Hillel. And Hillel predated Jesus of Nazareth by about two to three decades. Anyways, Rabbi Hillel was um, teaching the Torah as rabbis do when a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, came up to him and said, Rabbi Hillel, I will convert to Judaism if you can recite the entire Torah, all five books, from memory while standing on one foot. Rabbi Hillel thought about this. He then picked up his foot and he said, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the entire Torah. The rest is just commentary. Now go and study. <laughs> and he put his foot down. This directly impacted another rabbi who lived just a few decades later, Jesus of Nazareth. Somebody came up to him and said, hey, uh, there's a lot, a lot of words in the Bible. Can you just simplify it for us? Give us the cliff notes. What's the most important commandment, Jesus? Can you tell me? And Jesus responds by saying, you must love the most high God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That is the greatest and first commandment. To which I assume the person thought, okay, I'm done. I've got it. That's the most important commandment. But Jesus says, the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as yourself. On these commandments, then, the whole law is based and the prophets as well. Now, the law refers to the first five books of the Bible, which is called the Torah, one of which is Genesis, and that story, the law, contains the story of Noah. In other words, he's like, all of that is trying to get you to care more about your neighbor, so much so that you love them as much as you love yourself. And so with that in mind from these two brilliant rabbis, we return back to this story in Genesis. And I think about how I was brought up with this story, and I was told, Craig, the most important thing you can do in life is to make sure that you're on that boat. Don't let your friends distract you, or you'll end up like your friends. And I was like, I like my friends. But they said, don't let your friends distract you. End up on the boat at all costs and get to the next life because that's where life matters. But then I read these rabbis, and I read about Rabbi Hillel who says, if something is hateful to you, don't do it to another. Well, if you were suffering and somebody came up and said, hmm, kind of deserve it, it's a pretty hateful feeling you might feel inside, right? If you are loving your neighbor as much as yourself, you cannot turn a blind eye to their suffering and say, oh, well, you know, at least I'm in the boat. And if you really literally apply the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Rabbi Hillel to this story, which they were both talking about the Torah, which this is part of, I have come to this understanding of this story and what it teaches us today. It's more important for us to have empathy for those outside the boat than it is for us to be inside the boat. That's what this story is getting us toward. And when I come across this question from a seven-year-old that is brilliant, it is a question that is on the right road to healthy religion. Because it is a question that is asking about those who are outside the boat. The thing I love about the story of Jesus of Nazareth is whenever religion said those people are condemned, Jesus went to them and talked about how they were loved by God. Not as they would be, but as they are. And so, Will, when it comes to this question, this whole idea of what it means with this story, the most important thing you can do is to continue to care about the people who are outside the boat. 
Because if you can hold empathy for them, then you are following the way of Jesus. My friends, may you always hold empathy for those outside the boat, for this is the way of Jesus Christ. Amen.